0: Today I'm here with Jay Bloom, he's a good friend of mine in Las Vegas, and he has an amazing entrepreneurial story. starting off in New York, where he is, after graduating with his MBA, creating a helicopter company, getting involved in the real estate world, and now he's involved with all sorts of projects out here in Las Vegas, from being involved with politics to uh, getting involved with uh, the mob experience out here. And uh, he's somebody who has been living an amazing life, from uh, entertaining uh, some of the most interesting influencers here in Las Vegas, and I'm really proud to have you here on the interview today. Thanks so much for coming.
1: Happy, happy to be here.
0: Cool. Well, I've, one of the interesting things I found about you is that your work and fun has kind of combined forces, and I remember when you were creating your helicopter business, one of the things that you told me was how you were able to leverage that um, based upon um, your involvement with the football world, and also uh, you were able to build your helicopter company out of a, a fun project that you started off as like a hobby at first.
1: Yeah, it's I'm a I'm a big believer in if you enjoy what you do and you're reasonably intelligent and diligent, you're gonna do well at it. And you know, for me, um, after my first company, I got my helicopter pilot's license. Uh, went partners with some people, bought a helicopter, and it sat fairly idle. And I said, well, this is an expensive, you know, thing to park in a hangar and not use. So I put it into commercial service and. Within a year, I had seven helicopters in an aviation business. Um, So I bought the flight school where we learned to fly. I bought, um, well, we got a a Part 135 uh, certificate from the FAA, which lets us do charters. Uh, And then we started to do tour operations. And uh, what I found is we had piston engine helicopters, four-seaters, and they would retail for four or $500 an hour. And they cost about $100 an hour to operate at the time. Uh, And... um, What I found is that people really love the takeoff and the landing. That's the best part of the flight, right? So I said, well, what happens if I drop these helicopters in the middle of an area with a lot of people, like transient people, um, and really lower the price point and do really short-duration little hops, right? And just, it's basically the takeoff and the landing. So on the Jersey Shore, we have these amusement piers that go out into the Atlantic Ocean, you know, like a 1,000 feet out. And I decided to try it, and we... um, uh, we, we leased the end of the pier and licensed it as a helipad. Uh, and we did these little three minute up and down and I had two helicopters on a pad, uh, and, and one would take off while the other would land and load and unload passengers. And this one did a little circle. And then the second one would land and the first one would take off and we just kind of alternate off one pad. And, um, you know, every minute and a half, I had a helicopter landing, loading and unloading. And, uh, I was charging $25 a person, three people at a time, so I was getting $75 for every three-minute flight, and we have 20 flights, 23-minute uh, flights an hour, right? So I was getting $1,500 an hour on a $100 cost, and I had two-hour lines all day from open to close, just down the down the middle of the boardwalk. It was just, it was just all cash business. We were taking cash out by the wheelbarrow full, you know, and um, so it, it turned out to be a, a, a really cool experience and. You know, one of the things that made it so cool is I had this fleet of seven helicopters that I could use. So uh, I had giant season tickets uh, in New York. This was in New Jersey. And and I had these pilots. The Meadowlands in New Jersey has, uh, has a helipad. Um, so I would take the helicopter and I would have a pilot drop me off and fly off. And Meadowlands security would come up in their little car uh, with the little orange lights and they'd drive me right to my seats. And at the end of the game, when the game was over, I'd call my pilot and he would fly over while I would drive back to the helipad with Meadowlands security. And as I'd pull up, my helicopter was coming down and I'd get in the helicopter and just, I'm home in minutes. You know, <laughs> as opposed to being in a car with 65,000 people all leaving at once. You know, it was just right up and over the traffic. So it was, it was
0: wonderful. <laughs> That's awesome. I remember my Uncle Kewen used to do that where he would fly his helicopter from Princeton to New York when he was at Citibank and then land there and then fly home. And then you got to do that, uh, and that was like your, your job that made you your money and allowed you to launch all sorts of other businesses, right? That was your, was that your first business? Because it sounded like you had to make no. enough money first in order to buy helicopters.
1: Yeah, so, so um, uh, I started out of college with a, a bank called Manufacturers Hanover Trust. And they called it Manny Hanny, And Manufacturers Hanover Trust, I, I, I was an officer for the bank. And um, I got fast-tracked. They put me in a management training program and credit training program. Uh, and, and they made an investment in me, um, and then Manufacturers Hanover acquired Chemical Bank. And They called it a merger of equals, but we took the Chemical name. But it was all Manufacturers Hanover executives that ran it. And uh, then Chemical took over Chase, and then Chase took over J.P. Morgan. Um, so that was my background. Uh, I left that. I started a company called uh, Petasure, which was uh, uh, it was almost like a, a PPO network for companion animals. So we developed a network, a, a national network of about 2,200 veterinary offices where we did contracted pricing for our membership base. And we were starting to sell, you know, ones and twos, and and we, we, I was giving it some thought, and I said, we need a better way to get distribution. Uh, so we started to sell it as an employee benefit, and, and we got big companies to offer it to the employees through payroll deduction. So we were getting thousands and thousands of employees um, who were... Uh, who are, who are getting this uh, payroll deduction every every pay period and once a month we get a big check from the company consolidating all the withholding together with a tape that was a report of who the memberships were. And they could go to any of our providers and, and they get discounted contracted pricing for being a member in our program. Um, and then we started selling it retail through Petco and um, ultimately we, we sold it as a uh, a credit card enhancement. We, we, had a city, we did a deal with Citibank where they came out with a Pet credit card and if you got the card, the card acted as your ID for membership uh, to show membership in the network and the bank would pay us uh, per card per month a percentage of the spending on the card. That's awesome. Um, so now it was free to the consumer and, and the bank was basically paying the cost as a marketing expense to pick up a cardholder base.
0: When I was at uh, Disneyland about a month ago I saw the Disneyland credit cards, and then I looked up um, all the different ways to uh, create this kind of partnership. I'd love to talk to you more about that myself. Just for it's,
1: it's called affinity card marketing, and uh, you know, at the time, it, w- it was really new. They did they did it for the Sierra Club, uh, and they did it for um, like one or two other organizations. Ultimately, though, it went everywhere. It's college sports teams and college colleges and pro sports teams and. You know, any, any kind of club or organization can get an affinity
0: card now. What kind of risk are you taking when you do something like that?
1: Well, I mean, for us, uh, in that business, we had the fixed cost of developing and maintaining the network, right? And once we had it, everything was incremental income. Oh, so you're not right? taking
0: any of the liability in case uh, someone charges oh, back no, no. or does anything? No, no, the bank, yeah. the
1: bank owned and managed the portfolio, uh, and they used our benefits uh... as an incentive to get people to sign up for the credit card awesome. so if you have a dog and um you, know, you have a cat um, or two cats you get this card you pay an annual fee to for the card um, but you have access to our network of providers and it wasn't just veterinarians it was groomers and you know everything you have access to our network by being a cardholder and the bank would pay us for access to the network as almost like um uh, like a miles program with an airline.
0: It sounds like merchant account processing where they're also they're buying your services directly and you're also providing a credit line and then... Well, we didn't provide it. The bank provided it. Okay. Right. So Citibank would say,
1: Hey, get our credit card as opposed to a, a chase credit card or a bank of America credit card. You get our credit card. And as one of the benefits for this card, you get 25% off all your vet bills and Got 50% it. off your grooming and right. So it's like sky miles, right? When uh, you get a, a card and you, you use a card, you get free miles that you can use for travel. With this particular affinity card, you got access to a contracted provider network for veterinary care. No pre-existing condition exclusions, no reasonable and customary fees, and, you know, so it was much better than an insurance product.
0: And what made you want to transition out of that to helicopters?
1: Um, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of fun in setting things up, so I like the creative process of starting a new company and, and or transforming an existing company. But I'm not a day-to-day operational guy. I just, you know, the, the same thing day in, day out just doesn't interest me. So I tend to, to you know, get a business up and running uh, and then move into the next business.
0: Now, you've done a lot of businesses since the helicopter company also. I have. Um, I'd love to hear some of those stories. I mean, you got into the mob world. To- sure. Well... So um,
1: I had uh, these seven helicopters operating out of New York and New Jersey, and this was uh, in 2000. And everything changed September 11th of 2001, especially in New York airspace. Right? So I had seven helicopters that were grounded for months. So I'm carrying the cost of seven helicopters. Insurance premiums went up tenfold. Right? So all of a sudden, the wheelbarrows of cash as they were coming in were going out just as fast. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't nearly as lucrative after September 11th in that marketplace. Uh, but I had formed a relationship with Eastman Kodak. And uh, uh, Eastman Kodak approached me to do souvenir photography at my helicopter locations. Um, and, uh, and, and the numbers were, were quite outstanding. Um, I think they were getting $4 per capita sales just in photos. So $4 for every person that came through just in photo sales. Um, so uh, I took that relationship with Eastman Kodak and I went out and started a, a company and we partnered with Kodak and uh, started negotiating contracts at zoos and aquariums and museums and, and, and a lot of places here in Las Vegas, showrooms and things like that. Uh, and after I left the helicopter business, I did that. There was a lot of turnover in that business. There was a lot of attrition in that business. So you have to constantly get new venues. And I got tired of finding new venues. uh, So what I did is I I decided I wanted my own venue. So I negotiated for a space in Caesar's Palace, about 16,000 square feet in the forum shops. And this was right around uh, just as the market crashed. So I I had this, this great space and I was going to put a live performance theater in the back and tie in my photos. I wanted to own the venue instead of just contract with a venue because I wouldn't have a nutrition problem at that point. right? I'm not going to let my photo company go if I own the venue that contracted it. And I was going to put a restaurant in the front. Uh, it was a restaurant from New York, a themed restaurant, which was an awful lot of fun. Uh, but when the economy broke, the restaurant wasn't in a position to move forward at that time, so now I had the space and I had a theater in the back, plans for a theater in the back, and In the front, I was going to put this restaurant, but with the restaurant falling out, I had this empty space. So I thought about doing um, a paid admission attraction, right, along the lines of Madame Tussauds or Titanic exhibit or bodies. And I was trying to think what to do an exhibit on. So I looked at uh, space exploration. I looked at animatronic dinosaurs. I looked at all kinds of things. And I came upon organized crime as a topic. And it's so prevalent in the media, it's so prevalent in movies and TV shows, The Sopranos and Boardwalk Empire and, and just Casino and Goodfellas and American Gangster. And It's just over and over and, and it's, it has staying power. So I thought an organized crime exhibit would be pretty interesting. Uh, so I started to go out and search for artifacts. And I found um, Meyer Lansky's granddaughter had an online museum. Apparently, when her grandfather passed away, her grandmother got everything, and her grandmother, it's, it's, a, it's Meyer Lansky's step-granddaughter, it's his second wife's daughter's daughter. Um, but when, when Meyer Lansky died, his wife, his surviving spouse, got everything, put it in storage, and when she died, the granddaughter got it, and I bought everything from the granddaughter. So I had hundreds of Meyer Lansky artifacts that were his possessions when he died. There's some really cool stuff in there. And through her I met other, other relatives of, of organized crime figures and was able to put together a collection of about 1,500 artifacts worth millions of dollars and stuff never in the public domain. Some amazing, amazing stuff. So I negotiated a venue and we were gonna call it the Mob, uh, uh, the mob Exhibition. And uh, I got a call one day, and, and Steven Spielberg was in town and wanted to see the collection. So he came to our offices, and I walked him around and showed him the collection. And he said, You know, he said, you shouldn't call it the mob exhibition. You know, and he knows a thing or two about entertainment, so I wanted to hear what he had to say. Uh, and he said, You should call it the mob experience, and you should make it more experiential and less just static like a museum. You know, make it, make it immersive. So we we took his advice, we changed the name to The Mob Experience. Uh, We hired Disney Imagineers uh, and people from DreamWorks and they developed something really special. Um, We had these immersive sets and special effects and holograms and RFID triggering holograms of of actors saying your names and and having a dialogue with you. It was amazing what we put together. so I mean that was that was an awful lot of fun. Our opening night we had 3,000 people attend. Uh, you know we had planned on about 1,200. So we just got an enormous, enormous reception, and uh, did that for a while. Um, and then I went into uh, I went into real estate. Um, I was on an HOA board, a homeowners association board, and I found um, that we had about four. Uh, We had had about, what was it, $7 million in receivables on 1,000 delinquent accounts. You know, these HOA fees are like $55 a month, right? Well, somehow we got to $7 million in delinquencies on 1,000 accounts, 1,000 homes in the community. So I I thought there may be an opportunity to uh, do what's called factoring. It's a financial product that we used to have at the bank where you would go and you would buy a receivable at a discount, right? thought it would be an interesting business uh, especially since these receivables are secured by real estate so there's not they're not really risky receivables so uh, I started to research the laws and I found something really interesting. I found I found an anomaly in the law uh, from the 1980s actually and what they did is they said these homeowners associations they're kind of like privatized municipalities yeah you know, so when you pay property taxes to your to your town, That money goes to pay for roads and parks and police. Well, an HOA is very similar. You pay these assessments instead of property taxes, and those assessments go to pay for private roads and private parks and private security. So there's something called the Uniform Commission that writes Model acts for states to to consider, and they said we should make these HOA fees like property taxes, right? And then uh, other people came in and said, well, you can't make them like property taxes uh, because that puts them ahead of bank mortgages. Uh, so they didn't want to do it. And what they did is they said, well, let's do this. Let's take the HOA lien. We'll take a piece of it, just a piece of it, six months worth of, of assessments. And we'll make that what we'll call it, we'll call it a super priority. And that comes ahead of the first mortgage, like property taxes. But anything beyond six months is below a mortgage, right? So you kind of have one lien but part of it is ahead of a first mortgage, and part of it is subordinate to the first mortgage. And uh, that's it. That when The law went on the books, and nobody paid attention to it. And the banks were letting these HOAs foreclose. And I looked at the law, and this was about 2012. I looked at the law, and I said, uh, if part of the HOA lien is ahead of the first mortgage, like property taxes, what happens when that HOA forecloses to the mortgage? Right. Because when property tax liens foreclose, the mortgage gets wiped out. And nobody was attending these HOA foreclosure auctions because everybody, all the, invest, the investment community thought that if you, why would I buy a $300,000 house that comes with a $500,000 mortgage? Right? So they're looking at it as an upside down property. So nobody was buying them because of the uh, erroneous conclusion that, uh, that the bank mortgage was not extinguished like a property tax sale. And the banks were letting the HOAs foreclose instead of paying off the HOA lien. So I went out and I negotiated to buy uh, an assignment from. the I had to do it a little bit differently. I buy. I, I I purchased an assignment of the of the HOA's interest in any proceeds they realized under their lien, and I said, now go ahead and bring it to foreclosure, and I go to the auctions to to bid to buy at the auction, right? So I I said. If I have a HOA has a five thousand dollar receivable on a on a three hundred thousand dollar house, I come in and I say, "Well, I'll give you thousand dollars for that five thousand dollar lien, right?" And if uh, the homeowner pays off or the bank were to pay it off, I would get the full five thousand dollars back on my thousand dollars that I paid for the proceeds. If, on the other hand, it didn't pay off and went to auction, well, some third-party bidder could buy it at auction and I would get the $5,000 lien payoff. And if nobody bid, then I get the house. And if I get the house, it's on a foreclosure of a $5,000 receivable where some portion of that $5,000 is senior to the first mortgage. So like when a first mortgage forecloses on a second mortgage, it wipes out the second. Well, when an HOA forecloses on a lien inclusive of that super priority piece, it wipes out the first mortgage. Right? So, I'd buy this $300,000 house with a $500,000 mortgage, and the bank would be extinguished and not even realize it. So, I did that for a while, and that, that turned out to be a great business.
0: It's very creative. I guess a, a lot of that might have also come from your background from understanding how banks worked in that process. I mean, did you learn stuff that kind of inspired that process, or was it an opportunity to kind of just you yeah. creatively came up out of uh, your imagination?
1: My time at what's now J.P. Morgan Chase, I learned a lot about how banks think and how banks react and how banks kind of conduct their business. Um, and they're very slow. And bank executives, nobody wants to be responsible for, everything, for anything. And everybody does things by committee. And they hire consultants. And they rely on their lawyers. And they're very predictable in how they react to things. So I knew we had a window of opportunity to do this. And I knew uh, that eventually the market would correct itself and, and become an efficient marketplace. The investors would show up at the auctions, which means the prices of the houses would go up at the auction, and the banks would start paying off the, these, these liens. And that's, that's what happened.
0: That's awesome. That's, that's such a creative move. <laughs> well, I love the creativity of how you combine your uh, business experience, your legal experiences from all the different cases you worked on, your entrepreneurial experiences, and you kind of... Uh, now transformed your life into something that is now taking yourself into even newer grounds. Now you're getting involved with hosting events and politics. But I guess uh, a lot of of your experience in the business world has also been through networking and entertaining. And one of the things I really like and respect about what you are doing is that you are constantly engaging and networking with uh, expanding your network into really powerful people. and You can leverage those experiences for your business. And one of the things that I think really attracts people to this channel is the people that we bring in there and they share their insights and how they're using their networking skills in general. And I'd love for you to share some of those things that you think have been really crucial for your success as a great networker.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, Nobody does anything alone. I, I don't care who you are. You needed somebody at some point to achieve any kind of success. Uh, and you're going to have adversity. You're going to have down days. I mean, Bill Gates dealt with um, the Department of Justice, right? Uh, Steve Jobs got thrown out of Apple. Uh, Henry Ford went bankrupt. The founder of FedEx had to win in gambling to cover payroll in the beginning, right? So nobody has a very smooth ride and it's just all easy. People only see the successes, but they don't see the hardships. They don't see the failures. And it's all about learning from those failures that makes you successful. Right? So one of my favorite quotes, it's uh, Albert Einstein used to say it all the time. And I think it came originally from Thomas Jefferson. But it says, out of adversity comes opportunity. Right? And if you think about that, it's a very powerful statement, especially when you're facing the adversity. You know, When you're facing adversity, and I've had my share too, when you're facing adversity, uh, it really defines who you are as a person, who you, who you are as a character. You know what your character is. It's easy to have a lot of friends when you're successful, right? But when things are going bad, you find out who your friends are and you find out how resourceful you really can be, and that's that's what makes you successful. Learning from your mistakes, learning from your failures, right? Um, in terms of networking, uh, yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate in that uh, I've I've entered circles uh, of other highly successful people, and we elevate each other. They come to me for advice. I go to them for advice. Uh, the resources they have are tremendous, and I don't mean just capital. Uh, their relationships open a lot of doors. and uh, that tied into the political world. Uh, we have a lot of friends now that are, you know senators and congressmen and uh, you know just judicial, executive, legislative. You know all branches, and um, you know those relationships are valuable. You know they can uh, they can give you advice. They can talk to you about issues, and and you know you can pick up the phone and call somebody, and they'll take your call. Um, I don't know that you there, there's there's a, a show on one of the one of the premium networks called Donors. I don't know if you've seen it. <laughs> no. Have you seen it? What's that about? Uh, people who are mega-contributors talk about how they really get nothing for their money, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, you're not, you're not buying influence, you're not able to push things through, right? But what it does is it gives you a lot of insight into, because I have a dial, I become friends with a lot of these people who just happen to be politicians, and, and it gives you a lot of insight into how they think, and you can kind of structure uh, what you're doing within the parameters of what they're doing, right? So uh, it's, um, it's information. Uh, information is power. Information is, is how you succeed. And you get that information in dialoguing with the right people. And it's not just politicians. It's business owners. It's, it's uh, you know, movers and shakers, other entrepreneurs.
0: I found that continual education has been my focus, and now we're looking at going back to school together Yeah, MLB. Yeah,
1: you know, yeah. when uh, when we buy these houses um, and we extinguish the bank mortgages, uh, the bank mortgage uh, still stays on the land record. So you have, like, this zombie mortgage that clouds the title. So we have to bring a, a judicial action to extinguish the mortgage. It's called a quiet title action. And it's... Um, It's interesting because we've done, you know, I have thousands and thousands of liens against these houses, so I have extensive litigation experience, but I'm not a lawyer, right? And that was my my one big regret. When I went and got my MBA, uh, they offered me the ability to do an extra year and do a joint MBA JD, and I didn't do it. Uh, And that's probably my big mistake. You know, I should have done it. And now I'm just fascinated by the judicial process. And, uh, you know, my experience uh, over the last five years with the courts has been, you know, it's, it's logic, reasoning, and persuasion, right? But real world, it's not logic, reasoning, persuasion 101 in a classroom. And it's fascinating how it works. It's fascinating how the laws are developed. It's, and I've participated in, in in drafting some of the legislation, you know, related to some of the stuff I deal with. Uh, I've submitted uh, amendments to bills, you know, to modify existing laws. Um, So, you know, if you're in business, in some aspect, whether it's transactional or litigation, you're going to touch on the law. You have to. And when you do, you need lawyers and you need to understand what's going on because the guy on the other side of the table has a lawyer. (laughs) right so you are incredibly disadvantaged if if you don't know what you're doing and if you don't show up automatically you lose so you got to show up and you got to know what you're doing or you got to have people that know what they're doing and not every lawyer is a great lawyer right one of the things I did I was asked to serve on the Nevada State Bar disciplinary board so I actually preside over hearings with lawyers that are accused of doing some wrong things and we have some Phenomenal lawyers. We have a, a a friend in common, a very good friend in common, who I think is an amazing lawyer. I mean, he's done some terrific things for me, and, and I consider him a friend. Um, but being on the state bar disciplinary board, I see some horrific stuff done by lawyers. Everything from converting funds out of a ter- out of client trust accounts, you know, to not showing up to hearings. To uh, I mean, so if you get a bad lawyer it's just as bad as not having a lawyer at all. Could be even worse, right? Because now you're represented and you failed to, to defend yourself, right? Or defend your interest, plaintiff or defendant.
0: Very expensive. It is expensive, <laughs> but it's more expensive not to have them. Exactly. And uh, I found that even through the legal process, um, because I spend probably just as much time as you at the same law office, that uh, we spend a lot of time doing a lot of the work and, and helping our attorneys have to have the time to actually do their job right.
1: Yeah, your attorney has to be good yeah. to begin with. Definitely. But if you're if you're, awesome. a, if, you're a, if you're a good client, it makes them that much better an attorney. Exactly. Right, because they don't have first hand knowledge of what happened. Right, they're relying on you to tell them. They they need you to convey the strengths and weaknesses of of your of your interest in the case.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, when an affidavit I wrote it took. Uh, over fifty hours just for that one affidavit. Well, <laughs> a lot of research.
1: I mean, at this point, I've been deposed hundreds of times. Yeah. You know, and and uh, uh, when I go in for a deposition, one of the admonitions at the beginning is they you know they tell you what to expect, and they ask you, "Have you ever been deposed before?" And I say, "Yes." And they say, "Well, how many times?" And I say, "I have no idea. <laughs> Lost count. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I have no, I have no idea." And they go, "Well, uh, can you guess?" And I said, "No." Uh, and they say, well, is it more than five? And I go, yeah. Is it more than 10? Yeah. Is it more than 50? Yeah. Is it more than 100? I go, let me put it this way. I've done more depositions than you have as an attorney. <laughs> they don't like that. <laughs> they don't like that. But it's, it's um, you know, it's a, it's a necessary evil, and I, I shouldn't even call it an evil. It's a tool, right? It's really a tool to protect your interest, and the other side's trying to protect their interest, the attorneys have to advocate a position, and they're not all equal. You know? So uh, if you want a competitive advantage, you need a good attorney and you need a good accountant.
0: Yeah, definitely. And a creative mindset. I mean, you have a very creative mind getting involved with things as creative as the mob experience to uh, helicopters, to banking, to uh, real estate. It requires a lot of outside-the-box thinking and that uh, desire for social experimentation. You know, your mindset of how you see the world, I think, is quite unique. Well, I,
1: I have, um, I believe there's always a solution. You just got to find it, right? And if you haven't found, if, if, if you're facing a problem and you don't know how to fix it, you just haven't found the solution yet. You know, the other thing I'm a big believer in is, is compartmentalizing and, and breaking big problems down into little problems, right? So a lot of times people get overwhelmed by, by hurdles that they face. And if you look at it, it's not really, it never really is one big hurdle. It's a bunch of little hurdles that are just overwhelming you. So if you go, okay, I'm just going to put everything to the side and focus on this one thing and knock it out, right? And then I'm going to go to the second thing and knock it out. And by the time you get to the last thing, you're through the hurdle, right? A lot of people just see all the things get overwhelmed and give up.
0: Definitely. Especially if they never dealt with it before and they don't have uh, resources or friends you've dealt with it before.
1: Well, you have resources. And, and this is something I found, you know, with, with, um, with uh, lawyers, right? If you're reasonably intelligent, you can figure some stuff out, right? So even if you don't have cash for a lawyer, if you have the time and, and you're reasonably intelligent and you're willing to do the work, you can trade time for cash or cash for time. Right, so you can do, uh, you can appear pro se or pro per, do the research, right, figure it out, uh, and maybe you know ask for some help. But there's a lot that you can do. Now, if if you have cash and you don't have time, you hire the lawyer to do it for you. But if you're in a position where you need, where you have a legal issue and you can't afford a lawyer, you really need to to put a lot of work in. But you can still you can still do it. Um, I mean, you need to understand the rules of the court and, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. I don't want to oversimplify it, but it's possible.
0: I think it's really interesting to me because I remember in 2012, I got invited to be a speaker at the Harvard Entrepreneur Conference, and I was on a panel with a bunch of attorneys. And people were uh, listening to the attorneys talk about all the potential legal issues that could happen. And at the time... Um, They said, So, what legal issues have you had? Well, I said, Well, the only legal issues that I've really had to deal with are some contracts and uh, creating this company. And uh, I think that my legal issues are quite simple. Now I have all sorts of contracts and structuring, and um, I'm doing litigation against people who've stolen tons of money from me, and uh, then recreating new joint venture partnerships on immigration and work visa issues internationally for global uh, subsidiaries and all sorts of crazy things. Yeah. And you, you, it's surprising, you know, how, as a business develops, you have more and more of these issues. And I, I assume that you've probably have seen that as well. It's just that... Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, every, everything from, you know, internal squabbles with, uh, you know, partner disputes to employee problems to, you know, slip and fall to, I mean, you name it, you're going to need attorneys for, if not litigation and probably litigation given the society we live in today, uh, at least for transactional work to do, draft your contracts and, you know, it's, you can't escape it. You just can't.
0: One of the things that a lot of people ask me because they'll go through a lot of really difficult times in not just even business, even things that seem petty, like uh, walking to a beautiful girl and getting rejected and how to overcome that kind of pain. And then in your situation, you were talking about how um, you've gone through really difficult situations and you've survived those as well. And I guess a lot of people are wondering, what is it internally that you find, or externally, that allows you to overcome those things that you're most afraid of and that are really difficult for you to handle? Uh, you know,
1: it's all about keeping calm, don't panic, right? And then, and then default back into break it down in, into little pieces. And you're right, the adversity, the failure, the rejection, it's the same rejection that you see in the dating world that you see in the business world, right? You go in and you want to pitch a client and they go, yeah, no thanks, right? It's the same feeling you get at a bar when you go and ask a girl to go, go grab, you know, a movie or dinner or something. So if if you have that rejection, uh, you need to be able to dust yourself off, you know, swallow hard, and move on, right? Uh, or you need to figure out a different approach with that same client or girl at the bar or whoever you're 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 looking to to reach out to. Uh, find out what mot- motivates them, and give them what they want, right? Uh, you know, a lot of times. Uh, you can offer the same thing in five different ways, and you get five different results. But it's the same thing you're offering.
0: What do you think is, on, on a personal level, something that you feel is been, has been the most difficult challenge for you to overcome?
1: Um. I mean, so with the mob experience, um, I had a partner and we raised a lot of money from investors to, to build this thing. It was tens of millions of dollars. Uh, and it was private money and we had three funds. And my partner decided it would be a good idea uh, to say, uh, or, or to um, take the fund that he came in with, and he wanted us to bankrupt the company and transfer the assets to a new company, leaving everybody behind. you know, and. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. These people entrusted us, and it was, it was the wrong thing to do. So I said, I'm not going to be part of it. So he pointed his finger at me and started making up allegations. They are making up ac- alle- accusations. Uh, and he attacked my character. And it's very difficult. And because we were a high-profile project, you know, we're getting the allegations are getting press coverage. Mm-hmm. So he pointed his finger at me. I pointed my finger at him. Um, and I let him uh, run it. And over three months, uh, he took about a half a million dollars. He got rid of credit cards, went to all cash, stopped letting the employees do the bank deposits, and started just, I'll do this. And the money never made it to the bank. right? So uh, that was a pretty heavy duty litigation. And uh, ultimately, I came out on top. I own all the artifacts now. Um, he put the company into bankruptcy, and we lost the location because of it. Um, but what I did is uh, I, I took all the artifacts uh, into a new entity after I won, um, and I was looking to um, uh, take that new entity and deploy the artifacts somewhere else. And I took half of, that, half of that new entity, and I gave it to the investors that my partner wiped out. And the half I retained, I subordinated my interest until they get 100% recovery. So my partner discharged them in bankruptcy. Um, and they're going to get 100% recovery plus a return after he discharged them in bankruptcy in full. You know, so that's an example of I had, it's an, an immense amount of adversity, right, when there are public allegations against you that are just not true, but they're covered in the press, right? And, and you have to kind of suck it up and go, how do I defend my interest? How do I defend the interest of the investors that entrusted us uh, and, and make this thing right? And that's what I did, and it took years, and it was seven figures in legal bills. Um, but I came up with the collection, and I'm negotiating new locations that we haven't announced yet, but I, I think we're gonna get this thing open, and it'll cash flow enough so that every investor gets a 100% return over a year or two. And then there's gonna still stay, and at that point, my subordinated interest comes back in, and then for the eight or nine years that follow, Uh, we're partners and they have all upside
0: that's awesome very honorable
1: it's the right thing to do you know when you wake up in the morning you got to look in the mirror and and, you know it's that whole golden rule if I put money in how would I want to be treated right he told me you know I'm I'm JP Morgan Chase he's more the wolf of Wall Street right (laughs) Um, he used to tell me and he was like half-joking but he would tell me that his motto was putting more retired people back to work than anybody on Wall Street. I'm like, you know what? I'm like, he's not a good guy. So, you know, I want to get away from him. I wanted to get the people who trusted us back on their feet. And, uh, and I think we're on the path to do that. But that's, that's probably one of the most difficult things. And yeah, when you hear those uh, joking,
0: joking mantras from somebody, somebody there's always a, a, a bit of truth. truth. I had someone who did yeah. have to be There's an element of
1: truth in what they're saying. And, the, you know, they're saying it as a joke, but they're not. he wasn't joking. Yeah. You know, he would go and he would cold call doctors and lawyers and build a book of investors. And if it went up, he gets his fees. And if it goes down, he gets his fees and they get wiped out. And he opens the yellow pages and start, starts calling doctors and lawyers again. Yeah,
0: crazy.
1: You know? Um I I had no idea that that's who he was until, and that's when you see people's true colors, right?
0: I guess so. one of the other things I'm wondering, since we're both uh, married guys, and I'm looking at starting a family and have a surrogate, um, I'm curious about what uh, you think are your proudest personal moments that uh, you have in your life outside of business?
1: Um, You know, I, I have one son you've met, um, amazing kid, and uh, he's probably my my proudest accomplishment, you know, including business. He's uh, just a, a you know amazing personality, very very smart. Well, you interviewed him, you did. yeah definitely and, great interview, and uh, and you talk about thinking outside the box. When he was a little kid, he took an IQ test, and I, I'll never forget one of the questions was. You know, if if you have a cow, and it's tied by a piece of rope to a fence, and it eats every blade of grass it can reach, what's the shape of the pattern of the grass that's eaten? Right? Now, the answer they're looking for is like a a half circle, right? Because you're going to get a radius, the rope will be a radius, and, well, he comes back and he goes, there's not enough information to answer the question. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, uh, if the rope is longer than the fence, then the cow can get all the way around the fence, and it'll be a full circle. If the fence is like a right angle, it'll be like a pie shape, right? What if the, the rope is tied to the end of the fence and not the middle, right? So you know he's asking all these questions that would legitimately change the answer, right? And and but it's not within the scope of a question on a test. So you know it, it's it's some of the most out of the box thinking I've seen. You know so in terms of uh, uh, you know accomplishment or what I'm proud of outside of work. Yeah, the, the family is is it. Now, it has its challenges. You know, the, the the work-life balance, you know, is always a problem. You know, there's not enough hours in the day to do everything that I need to do for work and still spend the time with the family that I want to spend. So I always have that. But the hours that we do spend, I try to make a quality time, and, and it'll be stuff that he remembers for the rest of his life. Awesome. Well,
0: congratulations on... Having such an amazing uh, life you've built so far, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what direction you go in the future, and thanks so much for this interview. It's been a great time.
1: Absolutely, it's been a lot of fun. Awesome, cheers. Cheers.
0: I'm Nick Co. and I want to share with you how my team and I built Real Social Dynamics into the world's largest dating coaching company while traveling to over 100 countries. And I got engaged with my wife on my 100 country. I learned a ton from you and from the rest of the hundreds of thousands of clients from the 1,000 plus RSD live programs taught every year, in addition to the millions who follow RSD online. So subscribe to my channel and let me help you make your dreams come true. I like to help you create the mindsets, relationships and networks of amazing people to transform you into a true hustler. Let me share with you my personal global mastermind group of the best business superstars. On this channel, you will get access to my two core shows. First, I wanna share with you interviews with best-selling authors, millionaire and billionaire entrepreneurs, YouTube celebrities, and RSD's best talent, so you can go behind the scenes and learn from countless years of field experience to cut years off your learning curve. Second, I want to share with you my own intimate stories, field reports, and business intelligence, so you can personally get to know me better and discover how you can craft an amazing life. So, please subscribe to my channel and you'll get a ton of value from subscribing. Cheers.